This is a production of the Radio, Television, and Film Department in the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. Something interesting happens, you know, if, you, if you're showing people a story they're familiar with and then you're doing something unpredictable with it, which is that they're both remembering what, what they saw before and they're watching what they're watching now at the right. same time. And there's a tension to that that I find is, is really interesting. This is Media Industry Conversations, a speaker series where students hear from industry professionals who talk about their experiences, knowledge, and thoughts on the changing media landscape. I'm your host, Kyle Rather. This week's guest is Noah Hawley. Before becoming the award-winning creator and showrunner of the acclaimed FX series Fargo and Legion, Noah Hawley wanted to be a writer. His emerging career as a novelist led him to the entertainment industry, where he first became a scriptwriter, then a TV writer, and then ultimately a showrunner. First, he worked for network shows as a writer for CBS's Bones and then the creator of ABC's My Generation and the Unusuals. But it was Hawley's anthology-style twist on the 1990s Coen Brothers hit Fargo that solidified his reputation as a name to watch. While still running Fargo, he also created Legion, a visually stunning series set in Marvel's X-Men universe. Hawley talked about how he made the transition from paper to screen, the differences he sees between working on a network versus cable show, and why he believes Austin has helped him stay creative. He spoke on October 16th, 2017 on the UT campus, and the conversation was hosted by Elisa Perrin. Greetings, everyone. I'm glad to see such a full house. Welcome uh, to our next installment of the Media Industry Conversation Speaker Series with Mr. Noah Hawley. Thank you, thank you. Uh, thrilled to have him here. Before I do an introduction of him and we dig into the q and I just want to have a few thank yous. Uh, first off, uh, I'm Elisa Perrin, if you don't know me. Uh, and I, along with my colleague Cindy McCreary, organize these sessions. And I want to thank her, as well as our grad team extraordinaire, Brett Siegel, Kyle Rather, Annie Major, and Britta Hansen. I uh, also want to thank Tom Schatz, Chair of the RTF Department, uh, our Dean, uh, Dean J. Bernhardt, Assistant Dean Mike Wilson, and Stuart Kelvin for his assistance as well. And as always, be sure to check out our Twitter feed at RTFMIC to find all the latest news. Okay, I've done all the, the shtick. Uh, now, please join me in welcoming Mr. Noah Hawley. Uh, We're thrilled to welcome you here today to talk about your experiences writing and more recently directing and producing uh, across a range of media. Uh, Noah Hawley has won an impressive array of awards. Don't read them all, but they're, they was very nice they're of them impressive. to give yeah. them to me. Yeah. Emmys, Peabody's, you can, you can look on the website and see them all. Uh, and he's also the author of five novels, most recently Before the Fall. And uh, I assume many of you are most familiar with him for his role in executive producing, writing, and showrunning Fargo and Legion. So we'll be sure to cover that territory. Uh, And so our goal today is to walk through his career trajectory a little bit, uh, what brought him into the business, talk a little bit about roles and responsibilities, uh, and how they've changed over time, writing, producing, directing, what have you. 
Uh, and then current views on the television industry and some recommendations for all of you on next steps. Does yes. that sound good? Uh-huh. Okay, thank you. Okay, so let's dig in and just sort of talk about uh, what, how you fell into this initially. I know that your undergrad degree was in political science, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was Sarah Lawrence College, so we didn't have majors, I guess. It was okay. one of those schools where if you want to look at your grades, you have to go to like a disused office. And um, But uh, yeah, I studied a lot of political science. Um, it was more, yeah, a general, general liberal arts education, I guess you could say. Yeah, yeah. Um, I started as a musician, first, first of all, um, and then I started writing fiction, um, which led me to publish a, a first novel, and then um, somewhere in that process of writing the second one, I, I wrote a screenplay, because I was part of a writer's collective in San Francisco called the Writer's Grotto, which is still there, and, and uh, had a couple of friends who were there who were doing some screenwriting work, and so I would help them break the story and everything, and, and um, so I just took a crack at it, and kind of off of that ended up um, you know, I had a literary agent who was at ICM at the time, which is also has a Hollywood arm. So I ended up with a film agent there, and and uh, um, yeah. And then my my motto is, "What else can I get away with?" So <laughs> I started playing in, in with television at a certain point. Yeah. Well, cool. so did you have any sort of um, official training, or did you just sort of pick it up through workshopping with colleagues, friends? Yeah, I mean. I didn't study in a formal way yeah. writing, which means that I probably did a lot of bad writing as my self-education. Um, my mother was a writer and her mother was a writer, so I was, I grew up, and my mother never went to college, so, so, so that the idea that you could be a writer just by saying you were a writer was just very much the way it worked in my house, so I didn't feel like I needed an MFA or, or anything in order just to do it. But as a result, you know, you write a novel and you go, okay, well, I'll, now I'll write another novel and maybe that one will be better. And, you know, there's a process. It's, you have to, you really have to earn it at that point. So how did you initially make the transition? You were working on scripts and I know you wrote a feature or some mm -hmm. features along the line. How did you get hooked into the TV trajectory? Yeah, so I, I mean, I'll tell you the, the process, because it was, you know, I was a guy who I had, I had published a first novel. I had done a two-book deal. My editor left. Um, I had a second novel that the publisher didn't like terribly much. I was trying to figure out what to do. Um, I sat down to write this script um, that turned into a movie called Lies and Alibis. And uh, so I wrote that script, and then um, I showed it to the people at ICM, and they said, great, come down, because, you know, People have read it, they like it, they want to meet you. And I said, okay. And then um, they said, well, you, they're going to want to know what else you have in mind. So if you have another idea. So I said, okay, I need another idea. So I came down for these sets of general meetings. Um, and um, I pitched my new idea, which then got bought. Somebody wanted to buy it. So at that first set of meetings, I, I had that um, sale. Uh, and then my first novel had been optioned by Paramount, um, and they had hired a, a writer who did a really colossally terrible job. And so, so you know, at the point at which I had was taking these meetings and going around, Paramount said, "Oh, you're a screenwriter now. Why don't you do the next 
draft and then the, that original script that I wrote sold. So in the course of six months, I think, I had these three projects set up. Um, and uh, so I could pay the rent, <laughs> which was helpful. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, and then, you know, it's the, the TV business historically has always been very funny because there's this ladder in the business, right, which is like, if you're lucky, you start as a writer's assistant, then you get a staff writer gig, then story editor, you climb that ladder. But the medium of television is, is all based on the idea that everybody on the show is writing in somebody else's voice, right, mm -hmm. the showrunner's voice. Mm -hmm. So if you go long enough in that town without selling anything of your own, they just assume that you don't have a voice, right? So they tend to look for pilots and, and new ideas from outside. So they're always looking to novelists or screenwriters, or fiction, you know, feature writers, mm -hmm. uh, to bring the new ideas in. So I kind of came in sideways yeah. um, through fiction and then features and then into TV. And then you know, I went out and, and, and again, this, this is not how it normally goes, I think. But I had two, two meetings that I went in. One was with um, Gail Ann Hurd, who, you know, Produces The Walking Dead and is a longtime feature producer, who had a deal at CBS. And the other was with John Langraf, who who ran Jersey TV, which was he now runs FX. Uh, I went in, I met with them. The conversation was like, "Do you watch TV? What kind of shows do you watch?" And you know, we had a sort of very general conversation. And and you know, I was driving back, and and my agent called to say, "Well, they both want to make you offers, like a pilot offer to write something for them." So. I don't think that's the way it normally works. But I did write, you know, we ended up selling the Gail and Heard project to CBS. And then John Langraf, we pitched it around. And then during that, he was hired to run FX. So he ended up buying it, which was very nice of him. Um, and so over the next three years or so, I think I wrote th three or four pilots. Uh, I was still living in San Francisco. Uh, and I decided, well, one of these pilots is going to, they're going to want to film it at some point. So I should probably know how to produce something. Mm -hmm. So in 2004, I went to, I, you know, I went, I subletted a place in in LA and and went out for staffing season, which is a whole deal in and of itself. Um, and I ended up choosing the sh to go on the show Bones. I had a couple of opportunities. That was the one where Hart Hansen said, "You're going to learn how to produce, right? You're going to." You, not, you'll be in the writer's room, but you're also going to be on set, and you'll also be in the editing room, and, you know, and there were other shows where they said, you know, and rightfully so, like, no, we need you just sitting in that writer's room. Um, and so I was on Bones for two and a half years, and the second year I sold a pilot to ABC that didn't get picked up, but the third year I wrote a pilot for ABC that did get picked up, and then I went to New York to make my first show. Cool. Was that my generation? Uh, it was called The Unusuals, the Unusuals. yeah. Jeremy Renner back in the yes. day, right? Yes, good old Jeremy. Yeah. Um, so, Bones, uh, mm -hmm. you were on it from the first season? Yes. Cool. Yeah. So what was that experience like, working on a broadcast show right out of the gate? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting for me because I had, you know, I was a self-sufficient person, right? I was a novelist, and I um, I was used to doing it all myself. And, and one of the things that I realized very quickly and in, um, on that show was I was busy having a career while everyone else had a job, you know what I mean? And not everyone, but, but a lot of TV writers, it's a job, right? And you, you know, you're in that room and you break an episode and sometimes it's yours to write and sometimes it's yours to write and, 
but there are a lot of people who hide in the room, right? Who, you know, they let the class do their work for them, and then they kind of matriculate like those kids who can't read, who graduate from high school, right? And <laughs> and um, and so so you know, I I was sort of used to um, doing it myself, and and was happy to be part of the room and contribute, but I was never really thrilled at that idea that we were going to sit in a room for eight hours. I mean, yeah. a writer's room is literally a place where you know, eight to 10 people talk about what they just ate or what they're gonna eat next. I mean, it's not very productive. It's not a very productive way to do the job, I don't think. And were you doing most of the writing in the room and then you'd, would you still be working on your own projects on the side? Yeah, I mean, you'd, you'd be breaking story in the room, you, you know, and, and it was a very, um, you know, that first year especially, it was a, I learned a lot about how not to run a show in that first year. Um, it was, I don't think that Hart, you know, who, who has been, you know, certainly a, a mentor to me, I don't think he liked the writer's room much better, mm. and he was never in it, and, you know, and, and about nine episodes in, they fired the guy who was running the room, and then no one was running the room, but they still wouldn't come up and talk to us, and so, so yeah, it was a weird Wild West kind of thing, which was fine with me, because I just do my thing, yeah. but there were a lot of other people who were... You know, and it was one of those things. It's, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, but but um, it just goes to show. I mean, it was a show that, you know, in its first year, the network didn't really love. It was never a show they wanted to brand themselves with, and yet, and they, and it was never on in the same time slot in that first year for more than six weeks. Hmm. So they were constantly moving it around, but it had its audience and people. Yeah, you know, that's yeah. why it's been. It was on for thirteen years or something yeah, crazy. That's pretty amazing. Long run. Yeah. So how did you make the transition, or how was the transition to running your own show? So what were you doing differently, just yeah. for those in the audience who might know? Yeah, it's, uh, well, what happens when it's your first show is that, is that they, the network says, so, but of course we need to hire a showrunner for you, and you think, well, but I'm going to run my own show, and, and I think, and so it's very important that you meet everybody who, who could do that job, that show running job, um, and that you try to figure out the person who's not going to steal your show away or decide that it's their show. You know, here, a good lesson, write this down. Whoever is talking to the network on the phone is the showrunner, right? So if your showrunner says to you, you know what, just focus on the creative, right? There's a lot of writing to get done. I'll deal with the network. You don't have to worry about it. It's that guy's show. It's not your show, right? So. Um, you know, I lucked out. I, I, you know, I interviewed a lot of people, and I and I found this guy, uh, Bob De Laurentiis, who, um, you know, he'd come from uh, the OC, where he'd worked with jo um, Josh, and and um, you know, he's an older guy. He's probably in his 60s now, but he really felt like, you know, if I knew what I was doing. He, his, he would say, well, all right, what do you want me to do? And that became, and he has now worked with me on, on everything. Oh, wow. Um, because, you know, I mean, it is a team sport, right? And you need to surround yourself with people who, who um, you can delegate to and who you trust. And, and um, you know, and it's been an interesting evolution because there's a huge difference between a, a broadcast show and what we ended up doing on Fargo and then Legion, there's it's just a very different approach. And yeah, that was sort of my next question. Like maybe you can talk a little bit before we dig into talking about the FX shows. Yeah. Like what is What are the key differences of working on a broadcast show versus yeah. a cable show? Well, I mean, 
Writers' rooms exist because in the early days of television, you would have to make 22, 24, 28 episodes of something. And so the only way that you can do that is you need a lot of writers who can be writing. And you need enough that half of them can be in the room while the other half are writing. So t television staffs used to be like 18, 20 people, something crazy like that. Um, but it's not a great way to do anything, right? Which is to have a lot of people with very different brains who are all trying to agree on something, right? And, and what I found is that the only common language that everybody speaks is plot, right? This happens, and this happens, and this happens. And so what you end up, a, a writer's room really becomes an outline generating device, mm -hmm. right? Which is good for some shows and not great for others. It's not a great thing for Legion, which is a show that's much more surreal and experimental. It's like, you don't really want a lot of people to go, okay, well, this happens, and this. you're like, yeah. all right, well, that's just, but you know, let me just you know, play with it and see. So it's important in the course of that show to know, like, well, what's the big thing that happens this hour, but otherwise, I don't really want it all worked out. It takes the fun out of it. Um, but so as shows have now become 12 episodes or 10 episodes, you know, you just don't need that scale of, of writers unless you like it, you know. It's, I know that, that some, some guys do, you know, as some people do. Um, but, um, you know, so I went, I guess, on The Unusuals or, and My Generation. I probably had 10, 8 to 10 writers. And, and uh, you know, in Fargo, it was, it was four. Oh, wow. You know, a writer's team. Three, two in a writer's team, so four. Um, and then this year on Legion, it's me and a guy. You know, that's it. Um, and, you know, it's more work yeah. for us. But, you know, the reality with writing a show, running a show, is that you're probably going to rewrite everything anyway. So it's not really more work. I'm mm -hmm. still, it's yeah. just less people that I'm rewriting. And yeah. if I do my job well and train this person well, then maybe I'm writing less than I, <laughs> you know, did originally. So, but, yeah, it's been an in interesting model in the business. And you see people, you see, like, Sam Esmail directing every episode of Mr. Robot, and and um, you know that there are a lot of people who are sort of making them more yeah. by hand than increasingly. Yeah. So it seems like so. How much like what are the different sort of uh, figures or people roles that you're answering to, like yeah. a broadcast network versus with FX, like the layers? Of right. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you do you have this dynamic, which I'm sure you guys have talked about, which is. Um, you know, each one of these corporations, which is what they are, you know, they tend to have a network and a studio component, right? So, so Fox, which has FX Network and Fox Network, it has National Geographic, it has a, owns a lot of networks. It also has 20th Century Fox Studios. It has um, FX has its own studio as well, called FXP. Um, and more and more, they tend to want to buy only from themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So, and so if you're uh, Warner Brothers or Sony, who don't have their own network, I mean, I guess Warner Brothers has the CW, but anyway, so it's harder. It's harder to be Sony um, because you know the model now. Now that the ratings have do dropped and ad dollars have dropped, the only way that the network really makes its money is if they own both sides right. of it, because the network makes their money first from advertising, and the studio makes their money from foreign sales and residuals and you know all that back end stuff. So if you're FX, what you'd like to do is, is you just want to own the whole thing so you make all the money. Um, now the two shows that I do for them, one is with MGM, Fargo, and the other was with Marvel. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, 
you know, so I end up in a situation where FX is sort of half studio, half network, and Marvel and MGM are all studio, and it's they always fight about who's the lead studio and all of that. So, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot, a lot of, of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of people want to have a lot of opinions. Yeah. So, in addition to that, do you hear a lot of input from like the marketing people or the standards and practices or that sort of thing, or is it filtered through kind of the current executive? Um, yeah. I mean, a lot of it comes at me. You know, the standards and practices. I don't. You know, I mean, there's stuff you can't show on FX and you can't say on FX, but you kind of can. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. so it's really not until you get into the cut that. Where they go, no, 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 really, you can't. And, and then you go, all right, well, I won't. Um, um, marketing, yeah, marketing departments tend to be very closed environments. Usually they, they you know, I'll do a session where I'll go in and sit with the publicity and marketing people and I'll talk to them. And they're great at FX. I'll talk to them. Well, what is the show about? What does it mean? What are the ideas in it? What are the themes? Where are we going in ways that will hopefully inspire them? to design their campaigns, but that's about it. Then they don't really want my opinion. I think they show me stuff sometimes, but they don't really want my opinion. And it is, it's a different art form, yeah. you know, yeah. how to sell things to people. Do they expect you to be engaging on social media or? Yeah, I stopped doing that. Um, but uh, I do, you know, interview, I do yeah. all the stuff, you yeah. know, they have, Television Critics Association panels twice a year, and you know when you premiere it, they, they yeah, there's I do all the stuff except tweet about it yeah. anymore. Yeah, yeah, that can someone else can do that. Well, yeah, we, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> we'll let someone yeah. in the audience if okay. they have that question. So maybe you can walk us through Fargo for yeah. a little bit and just kind of tell us, um, you know, obviously. I'm a fan, um, and uh, I appreciate how you captured the sensibility of the movie, but made it its own. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you can sort of walk us through, like, how did you get involved with it? How did you sort of develop it? Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, did you guys see Blade Runner? Have you guys out, gone out and seen Blade Runner? I mean, uh, you know, as, as someone who took a beloved movie and kind of riffed on it, I, I, I think I, 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 I'm allowed an opinion. Um, and I sort of felt like what they forgot to bring to that movie was any ideas of their own, anything new. You know what I mean? It's, it's sort of like, I feel like they, they captured the, the atmosphere of the film and the sort of central struggle of the film, but, but it wasn't, I don't know, the, where, was the, where was the new idea? It's like, oh, I get what you're going for. This is what that makes me think about. You know, when I... Um, <laughs> I mean, the Fargo story started when I was at ABC, and I produced the show, uh, My Generation, with Warren Littlefield, who who um, ran NBC for a long time and is now a very successful producer. And and he had, you know, MGM had come back from the ashes of its <laughs> fourth bankruptcy or whatever, and and they were going through their library and going, well, what what do we own? They have a great library, and you know, Fargo came up as a title that that they had, and Warren said to me, did I think there was something to do with it? And I was like, well, not really at ABC, I don't think. And we flirted with it, but it just, you know, you're gonna end up making a show which is like, you know, case of the week kind of thing, tongue in cheek, it's gonna be terrible. Um, and so it kind of went away for a year or so. Um, in the meantime, MGM called FX basically and said, would you guys want 
Fargo is a show, and they said 100% will buy it. Um, so they bought it without a writer attached, and and you know they they had to go th with through Joel and Ethan Cohen, to, right. who so the, all that was done before I got involved. Yeah. So Joel and Ethan had had signed uh, on saying, well, if we like a script, we'll put our names on it, but otherwise, no one will ever know that you're paying us. Um, <laughs> and uh, so. So I, you know, I went in, I had been talking to them about another show, and they said, what do you think about Fargo? And I said, well, let me think about it. And then I came back, and, and uh, I said, well, it's not a television show. I'm sorry. I mean, it's not a series, right? Because what made the movie so powerful was the ending, right? It was the fact that here she'd seen this crazy Coen Brothers case, and, and it was the worst thing she'd probably ever see. And tomorrow her reward was a, it's a normal day, right? And, and the poignancy of that. And if... And also, it says at the beginning, this is a true story. So, like the minute that she wakes up tomorrow and it's another crazy Coen Brothers case, then it's not, you can't say it's a true story anymore. And, and it kind of loses that. It becomes shtick, basically. Right. Um, but I said it could be an anthology series. It could be, I mean, if you think about it, why is the movie called Fargo, right? It takes place in Minnesota, mm -hmm. um, except that the word Fargo is so evocative of a place, right? What Joel and Ethan have called Siberia with family restaurants and, and um, you know, and so now after the movie, right, it's also evocative of a type of true crime story, right? Where truth is stranger than fiction. And, and I said, if you think about it that way, then Fargo is really a state of mind, right? It's, and, and, um, and so they, you know, they signed on and, and I wrote a script and, and then, um, they were very happy with the script, and they said, great, we want to show it to Joel and Ethan. And so, you know, you send your script, you know, on a Friday to guys who were notoriously slow. But, you know, they may call, and we're trying to put pressure on them anyway. So they did call, and they were very nice to me. And, and uh, um, you know, I think they were very pleasantly surprised. Um, but they also said, you know, it's not our medium. Right. You seem like you know what you're doing. and and. We hate when people give us notes. We're not going to give you, you know, you'll never get a note from us, et cetera. Okay. And yeah, it's good. I mean, I, I ended up saying to FX later, it's like, you can't make a Coen Brothers movie by committee, right? right? Um, and ultimately, there has to be one voice. And, and in this case, it's mine. Mm -hmm. Now, that gets complicated if Joel and Ethan have a lot of ideas as well, because then it's like, well, whose one voice is it? it they're the Cohen brothers, right? right? But they're not going to do the whole thing. So, um, and so it just worked out really well that they've been supportive in a kind of passive way. And, right. and so, do they view things periodically? Or I don't think they've no? ever. No, I oh, mean wow. they they read that first script, and when we when we shot the pilot, we sort of forced them to watch it <laughs> um, because we knew we'd be asked, "Have they seen it?" And yeah, Ethan said, "Yeah, good." That was that. That was their response, which is huge, I think, from that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sounds good. And uh, yeah, I I would highly doubt that they've read or watched anything since. And if you look at it from their point of view, right, the the there's a there's a certain miracle to the fact that they liked anything to begin with, and if and there's only a diminishing return, right? The odds that they're going to not like something are just grow and grow with every hour we make of it. So. Um, <laughs> 
So yeah, I mean, I think they're they're off doing their thing, which they're is what we a want TV them to do. Now. I know it's not really, but yes, they are they are doing something. Yeah, for Netflix, of course. Right? Yes, of course. Um, so with Fargo, uh, you've done three seasons now, and mm -hmm. and you did your first stab at directing with was it the second season or was that your first stab of directing? Uh, yeah, it was the first full hour I directed. Yeah. I mean, I I had done second unit stuff and and before but it was interesting about the transition into Fargo because obviously you know it's not just that Joel and Ethan are great writers right they're two they're the two of the most iconic directors of our generation and and they write a lot of scripts that they don't direct and right. those never feel like Coen Brothers movies right so there has to be something in the filmmaking which which takes the words and turns it into a movie that feels like their work and mm -hmm. You can't ask them, how do you make a Coen Brothers movie? They get really uncomfortable if you ask them. <laughs> Trust me. And, and um, so, you know, I just it was up to me to figure it out. And, and a big part of what I wanted to do with that show, you know, I felt like the world had really been opened up cinematically. Uh, Breaking Bad is a great example of a show where they really wanted to tell the story with the camera and not just through dialogue, which, which is traditionally how television works, right? And so... I thought, well, let's try to tell the story with the camera as much as possible. Um, and, you know, obviously it's, a, it's, it's enough of a thriller that that tension, you know, I mean, it's sort of a horror movie, right? Yeah. And, the, and, and, and that's always about, like, time and pace and shots and et cetera. And then it's also about tone. And, and you know, I had uh, a lot of conversations in, in prepping the pilot where the network would say, well, you know it's not a comedy, right? And I would say, ah, I think you're using the wrong word. I think um, that Fargo is the tension between comedy and tragedy, mm -hmm. right? Not, not drama and comedy, but comedy and tragedy, which is a different animal than, than drama. And, and, you know, I feel like Joel and Ethan, they're laughing all the time when they make things, but that doesn't mean it's always funny, right? And the example I gave was, you know, Anton Chigurh, I said, imagine that I cast Javier Dem in the show and everyone's high-fiving in the halls and then I gave him that haircut, that crazy Prince Valiant yeah. haircut, right? Which I know they laughed at his face for like 30 minutes, but there's nothing funny in the movie right. about right. it, right? It's just this very specific, unsettling detail. And, and that's sort of my rule of thumb is that a lot of the things that I do are very funny to me. Right but they're not designed to be funny to anybody else. You know what I mean? <laughs> Maybe they will be. Maybe they will be, but it's also that, that idea that there's, that there's something comic buried in something yeah. terrible that makes it harder to know how you feel about what you're watching. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's interesting for me. So were you looking for your inspiration in terms of the tone, the style, what have you, at mainly Coen Brothers material or Breaking Bad? Like, were, what yeah. were other inspirations for you for the show? Or has it evolved Yeah, I mean, well? Joel and Ethan have a, just such a vast library. And, and, you know, obviously, we only own the rights to Fargo. But, but, and they asked me not to say this stuff. But no, I, I mean, I look, <laughs> you know, it's, there's a, you know, you, you have your what would Jesus do? You have your what would... Joel and Ethan do, and some of those you have direct answers, right? Oh, they, they, they did this kind of scene, and here's how they did it. And other things you have no, in the whole cinematography, you have no examples. So you right. have to go, well, here's how I would do it if I were them, et cetera. And, and, 
But there are things. I mean, what's really interesting to me about telling stories in that world is that, is that I'm both telling you a new story and also telling you a familiar story. And so if I have these elements that feel familiar, like our second year had a lot of kind of Miller's Crossing imagery in it, and literally to the point where in that, you know, seventh hour we walk, you know, somebody walks somebody else out into the woods and they beg for their lives. Something interesting happens, you know, if, you, if you're showing people a story they're familiar with and then you're doing something unpredictable with it, which is that they're both remembering what, what they saw before and they're watching what they're watching now at the right. same time. And there's a tension to that that I find is, is really interesting. Something interesting happens, you know, if, you, if you're showing people a story they're familiar with and then you're doing something unpredictable with it, which is that they're both remembering what, what they saw before and they're watching what they're watching now at the right. same time. And there's a tension to that that I find is, is really interesting. And she's going to go to the cabin. She's going to find him. And it's going to be the movie. Right. And it's not that. Yeah. But now I've now I can't I've tricked you right because your expectation you can't help but think oh I've seen this before, mm -hmm. so it's going to go this way, so you know I find that interesting to both be playing with material that's so familiar to people you know we ended up in a bowling alley this this year, um, if, if for a very sort of existentially weird scene but it you know the bowling alley part of it is now a nod in that direction. But I'm always sort of terrified that of overstepping or <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah yeah I, it's it's interesting how much you've worked on riffing off of over developing other people's work, but you haven't adapted your own no material not yet. yet not yet is that something that you see yourself as potentially yeah I mean doing? I've, I've we set up before the fall at Sony and yeah. I've written a script for it and and you know I meant to direct it as soon as we can get our act together um, and. Uh, you know, and that's an interesting process as well in, uh, in, in not being precious about, you know, you're trying to get to the heart of what was important about the story and whether the exact same things happen or not. It's easier for me to give them up probably than it would be for somebody else. Mm -hmm. So let's switch to Legion mm -hmm. a little bit. And maybe you can tell us, I mean, I'm just amazed at how you juggle all of these things, and that's a whole separate yeah. question. Um, and juggle being in Austin and L.A. and all yeah. those other things. But... Um, how did that project evolve and your involvement with it? Well, it was so we were we were wrapping up Gesundheit. We were wrapping up the first uh, season of Fargo, and and FX asked me, you know, Peter Rice, who um, is the head of was the head of television, all of television, sports, and everything. You know, he used to run Fox Searchlight and was an executive and. Uh, at, at Fox, and he had been the executive who developed X-Men, the movie, so he has stayed very close to Lauren Schuler Donner, who's a producer, and Brian Singer and Simon Kimberg, who kind of run that franchise. And, and I think Lauren asked him, could you see doing X-Men for TV? And he said, oh, that's interesting. And he talked to Gina Balian, who's at FX, and she asked me what I thought. And I was like, well, and this was before all the net, the onslaught right. of, of the te TV adaptations. I mean, I think there was just Arrow at that point, you know, <laughs> and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. probably. Um, and I said, well, it could be, you know, it could be something interesting there. And I met with Lauren, but I didn't really know. I mean, they, they sort of had a couple of ideas that felt very much like, oh, yeah, expand on this story from this movie. And I, that's not that interesting to me. But so what I did was I called Simon Kimberg, who's a, who's a writer. 
And I said, well, I don't have anything to pitch you except, you know, let's kick it around and let me think about this. And there's something interesting to me here. And, and I found my way to this idea of, you know, because what I like in that X-Men universe is, is that, you know, it's never really clear the heroes and villains. They go back and forth, you know, and there's, and it's a movie franchise that started in a concentration camp, so you know they're concerned with sort of real world mm -hmm. evil. And I said, well, you know, so what if, you know, it's, well, I started with this idea of like, what if Walter White became a superhero, a supervillain instead of a regular villain, you know, that idea, that journey, which sort of evolved into the choice, right, that has to be made, like, mm -hmm. um, and, and this idea that, that, um, you know, if you take this character who's maybe schizophrenic, may have this mental illness, or he may have these powers, or both, you know, then you have a very unreliable narrator, and, and the show suddenly becomes, if you make it subjective, right, right, his point of view, which is the opposite of what Fargo, This is a True Story is, um, which was interesting to me. Yeah. Then, then you know, then it's an interesting show, because suddenly you're seeing what he's seeing, you have as much information as he has, and the, you know, and you can play with the genre. You can play with the horror aspects of it. I mean, you know, mental illness on that level of hearing voices and seeing things, and never knowing if they're there or not there. I mean, that's a horror movie, yeah, really. Yeah. And and but and and then the love story came to me very quickly. As as long as this is real, everything else is flexible, right? If the audience can go, she he loves her, she loves him. That's real then it doesn't matter where they go or what they do or there's a guy in a diving suit or a guy in an ice cube or you know whatever it's all it's all in play yeah so were you looking much at the source material at are you much of a comics fan you know i had read a lot of x-men when i was in my youth as they say uh <laughs> but it's not something that i've kept up with really i mean i think part of the other thing for me was you know it took a long time to take it from conception. I mean, it was probably two years before, mm -hmm. before we were shooting a pilot, during which time Netflix launched six, eight, however many. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it became, oh, they're gonna do all of these, and then, you know, the movies kind of expanded exponentially, and, you know, that Comic-Con weekend where they released our trailer for um, first season of Legion, and they also dumped, you know, every other. Right. Marvel trailer, and I just, you know, I remember feeling really thrown by the volume of it, and, right. and you know, but also how, you know, in that comic book universe, um, it has this sort of might makes right mentality, and, and all conflict is solved ultimately through war, right? And I didn't want to do that. I wasn't interested in that. Those, the action of it, the violence of it isn't terribly interesting to me. Mm -hmm. um, Unless it's not story, unless it's story, right? So, um, so you know, I tried to design this show that that undermines that. You know, I mean, you think in that first year, it's the plucky rebels versus the empire, mm -hmm. but meanwhile, we're just going to go into David's memories to try to convince him that he's healthy. But then it turns out there's an enemy within, and that's worse than the enemy without. And you know, so so that idea that that you know, you thought that it was this, and then it turned out it's right. just we're heading in a different direction. Right. Well, and it's just visually beautiful. And I'm curious where you got, so what the inspirations you drew from for that. Yeah, I mean, the script that I wrote was not, 
There, no, nowhere in there did it say it was going to look like a 1964 British movie, right? Yeah. You know, and and because that, that wasn't really in my head when I was writing it, but when it came time to put the director's hat on and kind of design that world, I found myself attracted more to the idea that it was a parable on some level, and and that, um, yeah, that that it had this dated style to it. I. I didn't really know why at the mm -hmm. time. I've come up with a rationalization for it, but I don't know <laughs> if that's accurate as to what was attracting me to that. But the, you know, the minute I freed myself from real world, it's today, mm -hmm. and it became you know, much more um, of a fantasy, then, then it became interesting, yeah. Did Marvel get in, I, this is probably, we cut yeah. that, right? But did Marvel yeah. get involved much in the process, or were you? Yeah, I mean, Marvel's the studio. They're not right. the lead studio. FX is the lead studio, and they've been great. I haven't had any, you yeah. know, they've been really constructive. I mean, I, I sort of expected a notes call from Marvel on these scripts to be 45 minutes of um. Uh, but, they, but they've, you know, they've proven themselves to just be really flexible on, on that. And part of it, I think, this show was such a gimme for them. Yeah. You know, they have their global domination strategy, <laughs> yeah. which involves, you know, <laughs> these characters and then this team and then, the, you know, and, right, and right. we don't fit anywhere yeah, in that. Yeah, there's no universe building in this yeah. sort of way. Yeah. yeah, and, you know, I mean, Fox had owned the rights to tell X-Men stories and Fantastic Four stories you know, from before Marvel was really Marvel, and, and now I think Marvel really wants all of those properties back, but they can't really have them until, because the deal, and as long as Fox keeps making stuff, they'll, they'll keep those rights. So this was really the first project that, that Marvel and Fox, you know, were sort of working together on. Right, right. Yeah, it's been really easy. And can you talk at all about, you're working on a, another project with Marvel uh -huh. now, is that correct, or? Yeah, well, more with Fox. I haven't really engaged with oh, yeah. Marvel on it. Yeah, it's just this Doctor Doom right. project for, um, for, for Fox. And, you know, it's interesting, because he's a, I mean, a villain story is always interesting. Right. Plus, he's a guy who has his own country, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I thought there was a really interesting thing to play with there. Is it weird to pivot to be thinking about a feature now at this point, or do you think about the process differently at all? A little bit. I mean, you know, this 10-hour movie or 8-hour movie or whatever it is, I mean, that's sort of what I, how I look yeah. at Fargo. I mean, it's a, it's a different medium, right? right. It, it's, it's not television. It's not film. Right. Um, you know, you're 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 expanding a story over ten hours, and and you're able to do um, the nonlinear stuff. I mean, if you look at, cons you know, you have to consolidate a story into two hours. You're like, all right, well, this is interesting, but it's not relevant. It has to go, and you you end up whittling everything down until, you know, this. If you think of it, the story as a pyramid, it's like at the base. You have a lot more room. You introduce all the characters, but then by the time you're in the middle, you're just heading for that point, right? And 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 you know, in a in a multi-hour format, you can go. Well, this story is interesting over here, and it's connected to what happens later. So we're going to go like this. Right. You know, change point of views and and shift up what a story is based on who which eyes you're looking at it through. So, yeah, going back to to work work on features is is. I mean, it's a good challenge. I, I like it to sort of say, all right, well, how do we not lose that? sense of unpredictability and, and doing unexpected things and not following the kind of tried and true 
um, path. And I'm assuming that's still a pretty early development process for that. Or? Yeah, I'm just writing a script right now. Yeah. And, you know, it's not the first feature thing that I'll that I'll get into, but you know, it is something that I wake up in a cold sweat about because <laughs> I was just supposed to write a treatment, and then I was like, oh, it's just as much work to figure out what happens in the movie in a treatment as it is to write the script. So, so now I'm writing a script, which is more work, it turns out, than just writing a treatment. <laughs> So I'm going to switch a little bit to just talking more generally about the state of the industry. Yeah. And uh, maybe you can give our students some advice of uh, what you see as what they should learn, what they should know about uh, if they're wanting to work in yeah. the kinds of work you do. How should they prepare? With the caveat that every lesson that I give you might be irrelevant in a year. Yeah, well, and maybe that is itself. Again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's it's been a crazy expansion, obviously, in the last five years, you know, 10 years, but five years, really, as, as the kind of advertising bottom has fallen out of television, as, as people now watch on demand any way they want, except on television. Um, and what that even means, television anymore. Right, right. And what features mean anymore, if you can watch them on your phone. I mean, um, you know, or make it for Netflix or Amazon or something where you're not guaranteed a theatrical release. You're not, you know, that, that experience of what you've made is not necessarily going to be viewed the way that, that a movie used to be viewed. Right, right. Um, I think um, a couple of things. One, there are so many places who are trying to generate stories for people to consume that, um, and the only way they can differentiate their work and make a name for themselves is by making something different and better, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So Hulu is basically the place that you watch old Family Guy reruns until they make Handmaid's Tale, right. and then you go, oh, Hulu is a brand. They make shows like Handmaid's Tale, right? <laughs> yeah. So, which is nothing like Family Guy. Um, but um, and so the only way that they can get themselves on the boards is to make something different and better, right? So that makes it an artist's market because mm -hmm. different and better is so much better than just like that other yeah. thing. You know what I mean? And because there are so many now, um, I mean, Apple's just gotten into it, and and you know everyone is trying to generate content of very different lengths. You right, know, right? Right. It really is an artist's market. Um, I think we all see a contraction coming on on some level, on some form, but I don't know when. Yeah. You know, um, I'm not convinced about peak TV necessarily. It just may mean that you you have five shows that you love that no one else has ever heard of. Right, you know what I right. mean? And, and as long as enough of you love them, then they'll keep making them. But, yeah. but uh, um, it's much more of a niche culture now. How much are you thinking about business issues as you sort of go about, or what kinds of business issues should students know about beyond what you've already sort of mentioned? Yeah. Well, there's some interesting things that, that, that happened. I mean, when I started the first year of Fargo, you know, I talked, um, I mean, I just started thinking about well, so some people are going to watch it live with commercials. Some people are going to watch it on their DVR with forward through the commercials. Some people are going to 
watch it on a medium with no commercials. So this idea of the act break, right? right. How TV always was based on this idea that you're going to throw to commercial right. four or five times. Like, let's not do that. Let's, you know, or let's at least think about it. And, as, and you know, I talk with the composer. I mean, normally what happens is you have you crescendo to your commercial break. But if you're just crescendoing to a second of black and then back into the story, isn't that weird? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, isn't it? So maybe we should think about about how we're moving in and out of those stories. I don't. I never write any act breaks. We always okay. just find them in the editing room because I'm not convinced that people turn the channel because the last thing they saw wasn't like crazy dramatic. Um, <laughs> and you get stories. I mean, people tend to write to the structure, right? right? So if you know that you have an act break, well, you want something really dramatic to happen. Suddenly, you're finding another body, or oh my God, you slept with your mother, or whatever it is. Right. Right, <laughs> which you wouldn't do normally. So I just say, well, what happens next? And then we'll sit in the editing room, and sometimes we'll go, well, that's where you have to go to a commercial. Or you'll say, you know, well, we could go here. It's not, it won't kill us if it's comic or you know something like that. Um, so those elements were there, and then you know, um, yeah, you do you do think about the shelf life of it in a different yeah. way, yeah. Do you um, get any pressure to do to incorporate advertising or products into the shows at all? Or I mean, I have done a little of that, not so much. I mean, I guess what do we have on Fargo? We do a little Miller, you know. But then when you have a line where the where where she tells them, you know, you got to stop drinking, that's going to kill you. Then they make you take Miller off the can. <laughs> right? so, um, <laughs> Uh, but not a lot. I mean, we, you know, we did a, uh, you know, when you, when your second season is 1979, what are you going to sell? The yeah, best car of true. 1979. <laughs> and then Legion doesn't really. It's such a. I mean, yeah, all your places exist in. Yeah, kind of. They're all kind of heightened. But you know, I have done. I guess on my generation, I sold a Volkswagen or something like that. So it's <laughs> you know, people do it, um, but it's, it hasn't been a lot of pressure on me to do to do that. Yeah. Is there um, expectation of doing any sort of testing of your shows at all? Do they? FX does that. Um, you know, John Langraff is a big fan of data um, and, and looking at feedback, not necessarily because he believes a bunch of people pulled out of a mall in Vegas is a great arbiter of what's good. But I, I think more just to hear, I mean, look, it's all an act of communication, right? right? And, and um, I mean, I think there's, I think there's, there's sort of two notes that that you can give to a creative person, um, that are actually constructive. One of which is it's confusing, right? That's you know that's a constructive note, right? Why is it confusing? What what's confusing you? Let me figure that out. And sometimes it's not that that moment is confusing. It's that if you'd only clarified something ten minutes before then it wouldn't be confusing anymore. And the other is, I know what you're going for, but I don't think you got there, mm -hmm. right? Um, because then there's a, con a note is not, I would do it differently, right? It's like, right. get your own show then, you know? <laughs> and and um, I mean, Damon Lindelof told me once, you know, if it's not a show you would watch, you shouldn't be allowed to give notes on it, right? Which is a, a sort of startlingly simple idea, yeah, yeah. right? If you're not a Battlestar Galactica enthusiast, don't give notes on Battlestar Galactica. They're not going to help yeah. the fans about, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, uh, but and but then managing that whole process, the studio and network process, is, you know, that's a huge part of the job, right? 
and you know it, it is for a long time and and even now when you know they basically just have to let me do what i want it's still easier if i just take the time to say hey guys i i want to do this thing and here's why here's what i'm thinking especially with legion mm -hmm. which is a show that's hard to understand even at its best right but on paper or in a draft or something you know it's a lot of it is trust me, but some of it is just take the five minutes to sort of explain wh where you're headed, and, and it, it eases things up a little bit, yeah. Um, to pivot a little bit here, uh, I know a lot of our students wonder, should I move to Austin? Or yeah. should I move to L yeah. LA, to New York? Maybe move to Austin. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm curious what your thoughts or recommendations are about like location and opportunities. Yeah, well, there are a lot of things being made in a lot of places, right. obviously. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're being created or written in those places, unfortunately. You know, New York is still a place where things, you know, some things get written. But even Mr. Robot writes in LA and mm -hmm. shoots in New York. So, um, you know, LA, at, at least. There's going to be some point in your life where you're going to have to live in L.A. Let's just be honest about it. I have managed to avoid it a lot. You know, I was there for the three years of Bones, and then I went to New York and made a show, and then when that ended, I went to Austin and made a show in Austin. Um, and then I said, well, you know, I, then I spent a year, year and a half commuting, you know, without a show and... and was going to move the family back to LA, and then we got Fargo, and that shoots in Calgary, and and you know, so I've I've lived in LA for a total of I don't know four four years yeah, or something yeah. if you add it all up, but I was a special case. I mean, I came in as as a published novelist with right. a feature under my belt and everything, and and you know, again, what else is, can I get away with? I, you know, I'm just I just find it more interesting to live outside of LA, yeah, especially yeah. if you're trying to be creative. But, you know, it's like high school. You need to go and be popular and make friends. And, <laughs> you know, I had a, a friend who described Hollywood once as a castle with, uh, with walls but no doors. And you just ride around like, how do I get in? <laughs> but then, but then w once you get inside, everyone's so happy to see you. And where have you been? You're like, well, if you put in a door, right, I, I would have been here a lot earlier. So, you know, there's a... There's a hustle to it, obviously, yeah. and, 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 you know, but there's sort of never been a better time on some level because there's so much demand. Yeah. Um, that said, you know, certainly for writers, um, staffs are shrinking. There are more shows, but there are less jobs on right, some level. Right. And, and um, but again, if you, you know, a good script is undeniable, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, you know, I mean, I'm meeting with a, 22-year-old who made her own film and has written a couple of great scripts and like, you know, I mean, if the work is there, the work yeah, is there. Yeah. yeah. Do you go on set much for your shoot? Yeah. I mean, you know, they used to say if the showrunner's on set, they're not doing their job, but I think it's we're in a different kind of world now. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I am not directing an episode of Legion this year. Okay. That said, I've probably been directing like five or six days already because the show is always too big for the schedule, right. you know. So there's a lot of second unit 
How long is, is this eight or nine days? Or yeah, we went from eight to nine days, but but still, it's very ambitious in terms of all the different pieces. So you know, I found myself. I directed two days last week. I'll direct two days next week. It's you know, and it's good that I can step in and and you know do that because often you'll kick it to somebody else who's not as good as the main director, and you're going to end up with a kind of mixed bag. So. Right, right. Um, but yeah, it's not, you know, it's like I know that Sam Esmail directed all 10 because it killed him to stand around behind another director. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't feel that way when, when I'm on set, but I don't tend to linger necessarily unless it's a scene I really feel like I need to be there for. And do you go into the editing room a fair amount as well? Or? Yeah, that's the, that's the other place that's sort of critical for me to be, especially, well, on, on, bo on both shows, but on, Legion is such a show that's kind of composed in the editing room and, you know, uh, I mean, I'm going through that process now on the first hour of like, okay, well, we wrote the script and I like the script and then we filmed the episode and, and I like that and now, but now let's write it. You know, now it's like, okay, well, the order it was in in the script doesn't really work for me watching it, so let's move things around and then, oh, well, this would be an interesting idea. I mean, there was, um, you know, it's a very uh, flexible show, which is really fun, you know. we. Had an hour last year. I don't know if people saw where, where I think it was the seventh hour, where um, uh, all of a sudden it becomes a silent movie with the silent movie cards and all that, and and that was nowhere. That wasn't in the script. We didn't shoot it with that in mind. Uh, wh what happened is I ended up with a lot of footage, footage where it felt kind of over the top, you know, the performance dramatically right, right. and all that. And, and we had wrapped, and I sh thought, oh shit, what do I do? Because you know, the genre shows like, if you if you if you miss that tonal mark, suddenly it can feel very campy, you know. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I, I thought, well, let's put the silent movie card in. And the moment that you make it a silent movie, suddenly the heightened performance feels on purpose, right? Because that's what silent movie acting right. was. It's all overly expressive and everything. Mm -hmm. But that was me sitting in an editing room trying to solve a problem. You can't do that on the Americans, right? right you know. Right. But but <laughs> but, luckily this show is something where you can always sort of go, well, okay. Well, what if it's animated, or what if it's, yeah. you know, which is what's fun about it. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, let me relate to this. You've thrown out some show examples of Breaking Bad, The mm -hmm. Americans, Mr. Robot. I'm curious, what are you watching these days, or what's uh, yeah, I just started you. that Fincher one, uh, Mind Hunter. Oh on yeah, Netflix. I've heard good things. Yeah, yeah, it's very Fincher. It's good. <laughs> it's good. If you if you liked Zodiac, which I do. Yeah. And every time I watch it, I think I think they're gonna solve it this time, and they never <laughs> do. But that's the power of that movie, where you know it's sort of like that. You know, um, I thought Ozark was pretty good, also on Netflix. Did you see the Jason Bateman one? Oh yeah, that's, that's on yeah, Netflix. Yeah, it was good. You know, all hail uh, Rick and Morty. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, what else am I watching? You know, I mean, Game of Thrones is sort of understood. I right, think. right. I liked American Gods. I thought that was really interesting. Um, uh, leftovers I liked. Yeah. What else? You know, I mean, I, I'll sample most yeah. things. Uh, Mr. Robot, as I said. Uh, Atlanta. Oh, yeah. um, you know, I, I, I'm really interested in people who are pushing the sort of boundaries of structure and what the medium can do. And, and uh, 
you know, I, I had this conversation with, with John Landgraf recently about, because I watched Ozark and I thought, oh, you know, I thought it's really well done. It has that Breaking Bad energy and it's out of the frying pan into the fire and it's taking you on that roller coaster. But on some level, you know, it's, it's gotten to the point where you can make a lot of things that are pretty great, right? But why? What's, I mean, what's the point? What, you know, if it's just about putting you on that emotional roller coaster, I mean, I guess that's fine. Mm -hmm. But, you know, my goal certainly with Legion is like, well, let's take the roller coaster off those rails, right? Which are about the emotional, you know, the thriller thing. Right. And let's say, well, what if it's a, an intellectual roller coaster or, or you know, or, or a surreal roller coaster or where the places that it's taking you, the thrills of it, are not just based on, you know, oh, I hope he survives this right. scene, um, but it's more like, oh, I didn't know you could do this. Um, and, you know, really play with what the medium is capable of because, you know, I feel like we're only just starting yeah. to do that. Um, and so, you know, I'm always looking for, you know, people who are, in, you know, interested in, in that. It's not just the story you tell, it's how you tell it. Right, you know? right. Um, and it seems like FX is giving a lot of latitude to a lot of people to try. They do, they're very ambitious, yeah. I think. They, they want that, you know. I mean, it's, it's um, you know, it's rare to find um, executives who, you know, who, who are ambitious and are also comfortable with, um, with their fear. You know what I mean? It's right. not that they don't feel the fear, they just, they like the risk, mm -hmm. to take the risks. And, and, you know, I have a lot of long conversations where, you know, they're very passionate about, about their opinions on things. And then, and I'm, you know, I, I believe in, in feedback. As I said, it's an act of communication. But at the end of the day, you know, they, they believe that the, that the authority should lie where the responsibility lies. And if I'm responsible for the show, I should have the power ultimately to say what goes in the show, right. and if the show doesn't succeed, well, then the punishment is no more show. But you know, I'll, I'd rather die on my own sword, yeah. I suppose, yeah. if that's the right metaphor. Working. Yeah, <laughs> so far, I'm not dead yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I'm going to open it up to questions if that's good. Uh, we have our person with the microphone. Annie's going around, and there's yeah. a hand already down up front. It's not on, but it's a microphone. <laughs> okay. So you talked a little bit about how this hunger for new and, and different content is going on with both networks, studios, but also for audiences. Yeah. Well, at the same time, there's just more and more places where this content can exist uh, in this new and, and different dynamic. Do you see the actual craft of, of writing and creating story changing as the platforms change and, and that the actual stories becoming new and different. You've definitely done that with a lot of Fargo season three, a lot of Legion, and even just hearing you talk about it now. I mean, do you see just our whole concept of story changing as how we experience these stories change? Uh, I don't know that I see it changing as much as I, I want to see it changing, I guess. I mean, I, you know, if you, if you listen to a show like, I don't know, do you guys listen to that Shit Town podcast at all or This American Life or something like that? 
you know, what you can do on, those, on, the, on radio, for example, is I can be telling you a story, and then I can stop and say, all right, well, in order to understand the next part of the story, you need to understand about how clocks are made, right? And then I'll explain to you how clocks are made, and then I'll go back into the story, and I'll say, all right, well, hold on. Now, in order to understand this next part, you should really understand what happened to this guy when he was a kid, right? And, and, and because it's audio, and because your mind is filling in all the blanks, right, that's a very seamless experience. We don't do that on, in, on film, right? We don't normally tell a story like that. What we would do is we would try to have a character on screen, you know, you'd be in a scene with a guy making a clock and he would explain the relevant piece of material within the story, right? But why? Why can't we st digress? Why can't we st step out of it? Why can't we, you know, play with the medium more? Um, like I said, you know, Ozark, it's a, it's a great show, but it starts in the beginning and goes to the middle and goes to the end. Like, there's no reason that it necessarily has to do that. Um, the boundary is really, you know, I mean, there is no spoon, right? The boundary is your imagination for what the story can be. And obviously, those stories are harder to execute, right? And you do run the risk of audiences aren't prepared. They've never watched a story like that. Like, some people aren't going to like it. They're just not going to like it. So don't make the show for them. Make the show for the people who are like, oh, that's cool. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, huge fan of Fargo. Thank you. You kind of have to, though. I mean, you know, what's the point, especially if you're trying to have something that is, that is a thriller on some level? Like, isn't it better to know how it ends when you start, before you really start? And, and I'm not saying that I know every single thing, but, but um, you know, the example I'll give from Fargo is, you know, if I know that in season one I'm going to use a bear trap in the last hour of the show, I'm going to show you that bear trap in the first hour of the show. And every time you're in that garage, I'm going to hide it behind a machine gun so that you think I'm using the machine gun. But, you know, like all, as much as you can do to build the story, it's what you would do with a movie, right? Which is that you would never, you know, you'd never film half of a movie without knowing how it's going to end. I mean, they do it all the time, but, <laughs> but you shouldn't, you shouldn't do that. Um, and I, look, I know, like I've talked about Breaking Bad, they really never knew where they were going a lot of the time. And, and the, out of the frying pan into the fire was, was also described their writing process. But that just uh, wasn't as, you know, certainly with Fargo. You know, in this last year, there was a little more on the fly that I, that I did. But the big things never changed. You know, the big landmarks in each hour never really changed. But how I got there, sometimes I was a little more flexible about, yeah. We're making her work for her. I know. <laughs> um, you talked a little bit about how, because you came in to screenwriting as an established author already, yeah. um, you're kind of seen as a creator and not just someone who's hired to tell a story. 
Um, do you have people? Do you, do you have advice for people who are starting at the bottom of the ladder who still want to eventually be seen as creators? Well, look, I mean, there's a couple of things. One, obviously, the advantage that you have over, say, an actor, right, is that you create your own opportunity. So you write the story, you know, you, and you can always, there, you know, you can always write the thing that'll get you, get you there. Um, and if it's not the thing you just wrote, it's the thing you're going to write next. And, and, you know, you can't want to have succeeded, right? That's a past tense goal, <laughs> right? What I, what I find is that, I mean, I'm still, I've been doing this a long time. And when I wake up every morning, my first thought is, what am I writing today? What am I doing today? Right? I'm excited about the day's work. It's not about anything except I get I I love telling stories and and you know I mean when you write a novel, right? That's just a year or two of your life that you write on spec, and somebody might not buy it, um, or they might buy it and and it might not sell. Um, so the act of writing, the telling that that story, the act of telling that story has to be what drives you. That said, you, you know, so you want to have, you, you want to have material. You want to go out with material. You know, there's a lot of sketchy characters, obviously, in Hollywood that, that we try to avoid. But, but there's also a lot of good programs, you know, a lot of screenwriting competitions, awesome film festival, those kinds of things, um, where you can, you know, you can find your way, your way in. Um, you know, I just never wanted to move to LA and sort of do the do the hustle. I didn't move down there until my foot was already in the door, um, you know. And that's something to think about as well. Is that it's it is a more, you know, we've compressed time and space now, um, mm -hmm. so that it's easier to kind of just, you know. I mean, you you move there when there's a reason to move there. I think, yeah, yeah. Uh, bear with me while I make this question simple. I, okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sounds like it's not going to be simple, but go. No, no. Uh, so with Fargo season three, um, the same question has bothered me about it like since I watched it just because of how much that uh, my and my writing partner enjoyed it. And um, I just really wanted to ask you, uh, with season three, you know, as, as you've been saying, pushing what you've been doing so far, you know, you've been doing more with the format, more with the story, but it's also opened up, at least, um, you know, with my personal experience, I was a lot more emotionally moved by it because it was dealing with, um, I don't, I don't want to say a post-election world, but like yeah. very much like a modern time. And it's actually been rare for me to see something that feels emotional, but also, you know, isn't trying to make a statement about what's going on right now. So I just wanted to hear, yeah, just yeah. what are you thinking about at this moment? And Yeah, I mean, it, it was just one of those weird zeitgeist moments where it, it was always my goal with this third year to, to deconstruct that statement, this is a true story, right? Which is weird because story and true, like those words together, it's, it's um, you know, a, a story is a lot of things, but truth is subjective, obviously. And, and uh, so, you know, so I started playing with that idea, um, you know, the middle of the election year, I suppose. And then you know, we started to get to this sort of, you know, um, alternative facts world, which just felt, and, and you know, I mean, there's also a component of it, which is, you know, we have this sort of Ukrainian, this Russian character who comes in, which was also came from a sort of personal 
you know, from my grandmother escaping from the Cossacks in the middle of the night, you know, that was interesting to me. And then it turned out, okay, well, this whole thing about Russia and Putin and, and how they deal with truth over there and the two words for truth that they have. And, and um, so either I was going to have to run away from it or I was just going to embrace it. And, and I didn't really have an interest in making a political statement. I, I, I still don't. I, I want to I tell stories for everybody. So part of the reason I got off Twitter and Facebook is like, I, we just have too many opinions. We need less opinions, right? And yeah. if I'm not going to get on there to tell my opinion, then I'm going to be on there just to say, hey, watch this on, you know, that's, and that's just marketing, which is creepy. Um, <laughs> but, um, but so I was really interested in taking that idea, right, and turning it into story. Um, and my philosophy was that, was that irony without humor is just violence, right? If you think about Kafka or, or, or those sorts of stories, which you know, are about horrible things happening to people because of irony, but they're not funny because they're so horrible, right? It's like the minute you take the humor out of it. And so this idea that, that you would have this crime that was random in the first hour that would then you know, be hijacked and an alternative narrative of, of the crime sort of established. I won't ruin it for people who haven't seen it. You know, but this idea that in the end you're going to have a cop who's sitting there with a criminal and he's going to be saying, and she's going to be saying that's not what happened. And he's going to say, well, look, it, it was a guy confessed to a crime and it was found guilty in a court of law and he's in jail. And to argue with that is to argue with reality itself, you know. And, and you know, so, so to... To give the audience the experience of our post-factual reality without saying anything about it, but just to say, yeah, it's weird and it's unsettling and there's a violence to having everything you thought the world was turn out to be fake, you know what I mean? So, so yeah, it just happened to be the sort of right story for that moment, but, you know, I also feel like probably there are you know, it's it's also probably a season that is going to mean more to people five years from now than it did necessarily in in the moment. You know, yeah. One more question. Uh oh. <laughs> She's made her choice. Hello. Okay. Cool. Um, I was wondering uh, if you could talk about maybe your process of kind of like how you hire writers and, and staff them. I know. Um, a lot of classes that I've, I've taken on writing and talks I've heard says like spec writing is dead. Some showrunners say they don't really care. They just read whatever is handed to them. If it's good, some is just right. word of mouth or just watching web series. Do you kind of have a, a thing you do or is it just kind of a shit show of whatever you can get? <laughs> oh, is shit show an option? Cause, no. um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like a good shit show. Uh, yeah, it's, you know, it, I mean, I, I always like original material because then I know if you have an original idea, right? If you can write a great This Is Us, it doesn't necessarily tell me anything other than that This Is Us is a good show. You know what I mean? It's, um, so those original ideas are important. But you know what? what's arguably more important is you know, what's your brain like you know, in, in the room? Like let's, you, you know, to get in and sit down with a writer and just feel like, what's the chemistry? Do I, is this someone that I want to be trapped with for all this time, talking about what we're eating? Um, 
and 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 you know there's but there's also an alchemy to a room right which is like putting a cast together which is like you're great and she's great but the two of you together the, I don't want to be in that room you know what I mean so so you there's a dynamic to it of sort of having to create a room dynamic where everybody feels respected no one's going to shout anybody down you have strong opinions but you know it's everyone's going to treat each other with respect um and also that you have diversity, true, true diversity uh, of ideas and experience and, and, you know, because telling stories, you know, if you really want to see the world from multiple angles, you need people with multiple angles, you know, you need people who have a real diversity of experience and, and um, so yeah, so there's an alchemy to it and, and you know, I've, I've seen it, you know, I've seen it done by a lot of people, a lot of different ways um, and uh, you know I, I want to I always want to try to get to the the pure creative as quickly as possible and and you know so you you want to try to avoid people who've been trained you know because that broadcast model will will train you whether you like it or not to think about story in a certain way of like you know everything's a soap you know what I mean and every act out you know you just got to get past that and you know I want you know I had um, you know, I have these two characters on Legion. I was trying to solve a problem. I was like, how many damn characters am I going to have on the show? And I was like, well, what if there's one character that has another character inside them <laughs> that comes out every time, <laughs> you know, we need something. It's like, oh, that's fun, because then you, could, you only have one or the other or whatever. And, and, you know, I thought it was interesting if, if you know, the character you meet is this older man who has this young woman inside of him, like we all do. And, and, um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then, you know, I had the writer who was like, oh, and then maybe this, she's in a three-way with an affair with the set. And I was like, no, that's not what's interesting to me. What's interesting to me is that character who only comes out when there's action has never eaten a meal, has never taken a shower or slept. Like, that existential experience is so much more interesting to me than the action or sexual relationship components to it. So, you know, you need those writers who are going to who aren't going to make me do this, they're going to go, what if, you know, we tell the story about how, what does it like to really be them, you know? And, and so, you know, that, that's the goal, is the goal as a showrunner is like, how do I get the people who are going to make the show that I want to make so that I can go home at night and see my kids? Yeah. That seems like a really good yeah. ending point. I know. Let's that go was home. nice. Uh, thank you very much. This is great. Thanks for listening to this media industry conversation. For more information about upcoming speakers or to hear past guests, visit rtf.utexas.edu mic. If you have a moment, rate and review us on iTunes. If you love the show, let us know. This series was made possible by the work of Dr. Elisa Perrin and Cindy McCreary, with the assistance of Brett Siegel, Britta Hansen, and Annie Major, and the program was produced and edited by me, Kyle Rather. This has been a production of the Department of Radio, Television, and Film in the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas in Austin. Please join us again next time for another media industry conversation. There is a land, a western land, mighty wonderful to see. It is a land I understand.